Bridget Stomberg. And I'm Lisa DeSimone. And this is Taxes for the Masses. Today's episode is on a provision intended to inject cash into the hands of households with children, but it's ended up injecting as much confusion as anything else. In March 2021, Congress passed President Biden's American Rescue Plan, intended to provide economic relief to Americans, better control the COVID-19 pandemic, and boost the economy. Under the plan, the amount of the child tax credit was increased, as well as the scope of qualifying children. Further, taxpayers can now choose to receive the credits throughout the year with the goal of getting the funds into the hands of households with children earlier than usual to alleviate taxpayers' financial burdens and stimulate spending. Hello, B. Hello, Lisa. Today's topic is on something I know nothing about, children. And seeing as how you couldn't pay me enough to have children, I'm thinking I'm just going to go rosé all day and let you handle this one. Is now not the right time to tell you that you're the mother of my child? (laughs) So today we're going to start with Tax Incentives 101. Why do families with kids need equity through tax relief? It's because a household with, let's say, $78,000 of income and no kids is definitely better able to make ends meet than a household with $78,000 of income and, let's say, three kids. So the child tax credit is trying to ease the financial burden of the families that have the kids. Taking a step back, there are actually two major tools the government can use to ease taxpayers' financial burdens by reducing their tax burden without touching the tax rate. These two things are deductions and credits. And as we've said before, deductions reduce the amount of taxable income a taxpayer reports, whereas tax credits offer a dollar-for-dollar reduction in taxes owed. So let's say I have $100 of income and my tax rate is 25%. I owe $25 of tax. If I qualify for a $20 deduction, that's going to reduce my taxable income from $100 down to $80. Then I multiply that $80 by the 25% tax rate and I owe $20. So that $20 deduction has just saved me $5 of tax. But if instead Congress gave me a $20 credit, I still have $100 of taxable income, apply that 25% rate, and I have a pre-credit tax burden of $25. Then I get to use that $20 credit and reduce my tax burden all the way down to just $5. So this is a really clear way to see how a $20 credit is worth much, much more to me than a $20 deduction. Now, one way to make things more even, obviously, would be to offer a bigger deduction. So in this case, if Congress gave me an $80 deduction, I would be getting the same tax benefit as I would through a $20 credit. So that's the first question for us today. And this is a question I've gotten from my students in the past, and I actually had to think about it quite a bit. Why did Congress choose to make it a child tax credit instead of just a child tax deduction? I can think of two reasons. And let's remember what we're trying to accomplish with this tax incentive is easing the financial burden of lower income households with kids. So the first reason deductions aren't so great here is that deductions tend to be tied to cash outlays, things you spend money on like mortgage interest, charitable contributions, child care. Exactly. So whereas a higher income family might be able to pay a daycare to watch their kids, it's more probable that a lower income family is relying on friends or other family to watch their kids for free. So if we used a deduction, it would be those high income households that would get all the benefit, not those we were trying to target. 
So the second reason is that assuming the amount spent is the same between a high income and a low income household, contradicting everything we just said, even then the tax benefit of a deduction is going to be less in a low income household because of the way our tax rates are structured. That's right. So in the U.S., we have what are called progressive tax rates, which means the higher your income is, the higher your tax rate is, and the more valuable deductions are to you. So if one family spends $1,000 on deductible childcare and has a tax rate of only 15%, those deductions for childcare yield a $150 tax benefit to that family. Whereas if another higher income family spends that same $1,000, but has a tax rate of 37%, their tax benefit from that deduction is now double. And that runs counter to the policy objective we're trying to achieve. In countries with falling birth rates, we've seen drastic increases in government spending to encourage families to have more kids. Poland pays $125 a month for each child after the first one and has been doing so since 2019 to promote what it calls, quote, family values. Japan doubled what it calls its child tax allowance in 2007 after facing declining birth rates. And then there's a sample of other countries, Estonia, Hungary, and Bulgaria, for example, whose young professionals often leave for greener pastures elsewhere. These countries offer some of the world's longest paid maternity leave more than an entire year. Wow, that is nice. So this raises another question, B. How much do we think this is playing a role in the U.S.? Probably a pretty small reason for the child tax credit. At least it's not what politicians talk about when they talk about the child tax credit. So I think the incentive has little to do with stimulating production and procreation. And I would say hallelujah for that, because although I can't put a precise price tag on it, I do think that motherhood costs more than $3,600. So we can't price it, but we can put a lower bound on it. One problem with many credits is that they are non-refundable, which means they only help reduce your tax burden down to zero. So back to our simple example, if I owed $25 in tax for the year before credits, but I qualify for a $30 credit, in most cases, the best I can do is reduce my taxes down to zero and carry forward that excess credit in the hopes that I can use it in a future year. If we instead make the credit refundable, the government would actually pay you that $5 instead of making you carry that forward to apply it against taxes owed in a future year. So these refundable credits, unfortunately, can create some rather strong incentives for taxpayers to try to qualify for them. B and I, along with our quote-unquote research dad, John Robinson, now at Texas A&M University, we've seen this in the paper industry back when the economy was trying to recover from the dot-com boom and bust. There were at least 19 paper companies that exploited what I think is pretty objectively considered a loophole. Yuppers. And it basically allowed these companies to claim $6.4 billion, with a B, in these refundable tax credits in a single year for basically using green energy alternatives to fuel their paper production process. The thing is, they'd already been doing this for decades, so they were just getting paid a lot of money to do something that they'd already been doing. And it actually gets even worse than that, because in order to qualify for the credit, they actually had to add dirty diesel to what had been a green energy source. Yeah, so the money paid out by Congress to these firms to get them to be more green actually required them to use dirtier fuel than what they'd already been using 
think we can all agree that that is no bueno. No bueno. But we digress. The point is that refundable tax credits are really valuable, and that's one of the changes Congress made to the child tax credits as part of the American Rescue Plan in March of 2021. First, they made the credits fully refundable. Second, Congress increased the amount of the credit, where the most you could get before this law was only 2000 per child. Now you can get between 3000 and 3600 Third, they lowered the income at which households start to phase out or get a reduced amount of the credit. And finally, they started giving taxpayers the option to receive the credits during the year. Okay, so we're going to come back to that timing issue later because that has been one of the biggest deals of the changes. It's been a huge deal. But first, let's talk about whether this policy is effective. Has paying more funds out more quickly had any impact on the economy? Well, it's pretty early because payments just started in July. So we really only have about two months of data. But making the credit refundable seems like a no-brainer because people with zero or very little income are likely the most in need of these benefits. So that at least seems like a step in the right direction, even without hard data to back that up. Let's focus on what we do know. Magnify Money is a personal finance outlet owned by LendingTree, and they did a survey of how households were using the child tax credit payments they started receiving in July of 2021. That's right. So they surveyed about 1,000 parents with children eligible for the credit. When they asked parents what they intended to spend the money on, the single most frequent response was groceries. So 45% of these parents said that they were going to spend these checks to put food on the table. The same is true for the second most frequent response. 44% of surveyed parents indicated that they would use the checks on school supplies. Wow. Wow. And I think it was a happy coincidence, but yay that these checks started going out in July and August. It's pretty timely given the start of the school year and how many school supplies children are required to bring because so many school districts don't have the money to provide them to students anymore. And not unexpectedly, the least frequently selected category was travel at only 6%. So clearly the vast majority of these parents indicated that they would be spending the funds on what I think we can all agree are necessities. And the survey evidence is backed up by a study from Columbia University that found similar evidence of beneficial effects They estimated that the first installment of the child tax credit lifted about 3 million kids out of poverty in July. So while there is cause to be optimistic, these figures are also really striking about the extent of poverty in the U.S. In December of 2020, the U.S. government estimated that one in six children in America lived below the poverty line. That is not a very good stat for one of the world's most developed advanced economies. The OECD, which is a club of mostly rich countries, ranks all of its members by the number of children aged 17 or less that live below the poverty line, and they define the poverty line as half of median income in that country. And drumroll, the United States ranks second to last of all countries included in the analysis. Let me say that again so the people in the back can hear me. Second to last. Thank God for Costa Rica or we'd be dead last. Yikes. Now, it could be, just to play devil's advocate here, that median income in the U.S. is so high compared to other countries that those below the poverty line here are, you know, better off than those below the poverty line somewhere else because that poverty line is relative. But the median household income in the U.S. in 2020, as we said, was $78,000. So we've got a lot of children growing up in homes that have income of around only 40000 That's enough to afford a house in only about 17 states. So I'm sitting here in the great state of Indiana. Let's see what you can get with $40,000 of income in Indiana. First, you need about $32,000 to be able to own a house 
And according to the USDA, you need about $8,000 a year minimum to feed a family of four on what they call a thrifty budget, which growing up in my house meant canned tuna and ramen noodles. Yuck. They're actually quite good when you mix them together. (laughs) You got to drain the liquid out of the ramen though. So it's dry ramen with tuna mixed in. You're not helping your case here. Anywho, you spent $32,000 to buy a house. You spent $8,000 on food and oops, you've now exhausted, more than exhausted, 50% of the median household income. And you haven't even gotten to spend any money on those luxury items like clothes and health insurance. All right, Democrats and Republicans alike have actually argued for years that we should expand child tax credits. People from W. Bush and Mitt Romney to Hillary Clinton to Ted Cruz and Ivanka Trump. Holy cow. I mean, that's like the very definition of a bipartisan cause because some of these people can't even agree on the color of money. So if they can agree that the expanded child tax credit is a good thing, I mean, that's that's phenomenal. It, it's phenomenal. It's un, it's unbelievable, right? But there's good reason to think that the child tax credit is good policy, right? Some of these proposals estimate that expanding the child tax credit, like Biden did, could reduce the number of U.S. children living in poverty by half. That's huge. That is really huge. Let's get into one of the details of the expanded child tax credit that has caused a lot of confusion. Yes. And isn't it ironic that it was the quick payouts during the year that have caused the biggest headache? Yeah, the intent behind this provision was so good to reduce the income volatility that a lot of lower income households face and, as we said, provide cash infusions at what could be a particularly important time of year, that back to school time of year. But this provision wound up confusing a lot of people because they weren't sure whether they should opt out of the current payments under the fear that they were just going to have to pay it back come time to file their tax returns. I can't understate how confusing this was. So I am on multiple Facebook groups that cater towards mothers and parents. This topic was all over the discussion boards, all over people's Facebook posts. It was so bad that I got an email from Carter's, which is a company that sells children's clothing trying to offer tax advice to their customers about how they should deal with this option to get these payments in advance. The immediate payments are only for half of the amount a household would qualify to receive based on their 2020 tax return. And the reason we need your 2020 tax return is that the amount of the child tax credit a household is eligible for starts to decline once the household makes more than some threshold amount of taxable income. For a household that files married filing jointly, this threshold is $150,000. Households making more than that amount wouldn't be eligible to receive the full $3,600 per child under six or $3,000 per child under 18 like everyone else. The more they make over this threshold, the less benefit they get. And this isn't a bad thing. This totally makes sense because the more you make, the less you need the government support to raise your children. The problem is that the amount of income you earned in 2020 may not be a good estimate of the amount you're going to earn in 2021. You could earn much, much more in 2021 than in 2020 if you had back in 2020 lost work due to COVID. So when you file your tax return for 2021 and the IRS sees how much more you made, 
you may no longer qualify for all of those checks that you received during the year. You would have to pay it back. Further, there's probably a relatively large contingent of people who are just so freaking confused about the whole thing and afraid that they just don't know what to do. And that's our second big talking point for today. What is the difference between a tax liability and your taxes due or your refund? Because unfortunately, on a lot of these posts that I was reading, people were saying, my liability is going to go up. And it actually wouldn't. Super important point. So the U.S. has what we call a pay-as-you-go system. If you're employed, your employer estimates how much income tax you're going to owe at the end of the year and withholds periodic amounts of that from your paycheck, sends it to the IRS on your behalf. When you file your return in April of the following year, you basically are comparing these estimates to what you actually owe. If you paid in too much, you get a refund. If you paid in too little, you owe a little bit more in tax. But the timing of the payments doesn't change your tax liability. That's the key thing to keep in mind here. All it does is change when you paid the tax. So I feel some back of the envelope math coming on here. And here it comes. I'm going to hit you. We need a bell. Fantastic. So let's say in 2017, you had $50,000 of taxable income and your tax rate was 25%. Let's also say that your employer withheld $15,000 from your paycheck, as they are legally required to do. At the end of the year, your tax liability was only $12,500. So you get a refund of $2,500. And you're getting that refund because your employer withheld too much money from your paycheck. Exactly. Now let's say it's 2018 after the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act and your average tax rate dropped down to 20%. And let's say you were also smart about this and you reduced your withholding. So now your employer hung on to only $11,000 of your paycheck throughout the year. Your tax liability would drop to 10K because of the lower tax rate, but your refund would also drop to $1,000 because you got smarter and asked your employer to withhold less. No matter how you look at this, you are still better off because your total liability, the amount you paid to the IRS for how much you earned all year, went down. And you did a better job of estimating that amount so that you didn't pay too much too early. So even though your refund was smaller, you're still better off. Another way of looking at this is that getting a big refund, all that really means is that you loaned the government your money interest-free for a year. This is the way our tax system works and has worked for many, many years. And this is the way the child tax credit works too. They're going to pay you based on their best guess of what you qualify for. And then you're going to true it up when you file your tax return to find out if you are owed more or if you need to pay some of it back. Yes. Taking the payments throughout the year doesn't change your tax liability. It doesn't change the total amount of money you owe to the IRS for the year. It does potentially change the timing of that liability payment. And chances are just as good that you'll be owed more of the child tax credit when you file your return. Yeah, these payments were set up so that you only receive half of your estimated amount. The other half was always going to be credited to you on your tax return. If you usually receive a refund come tax season and you do have to pay the government back some of the child tax credit payments you received during the year, it probably would just end up reducing the amount of your refund. Right. Not actually making you owe any money when you file your return.
And now it is time for the good, the bad, and the ugly of this proposal. And once again, I'm going to play against type here because there really is a lot of good in this provision. First, it expands a tax incentive program that many have wanted to expand for years. Sad that it took a global pandemic to get us there, but I'm not going to quibble. Second, by all accounts, a larger fully refundable credit is going to help reduce childhood poverty. And there is some evidence that these types of tax credits improve outcomes for low-income kids like higher test scores. Third, it gets cash into the hands of those who need it when they need it. I grew up well below 50% of the median household income in the U.S., and I remember how truly life-changing it was to stumble across some extra cash. So I really love this part of the plan. Agreed. And as as many of us recognize, a lot of those lower income households, these tend to be communities of color that are more largely impacted by these types of incentives, which can help uh, improve social equity as well. Okay, so now on to the bad. What I don't love is the rollout could have been a lot more smooth. Too many households are just too confused about the checks they're receiving. The worst part is my fear is that this is causing some families to forgo early payments that they really need out of fear that they're just going to have a bad outcome at tax time. I really wish the IRS had come out and said very publicly, very vocally, you know what? If you mess it up this year and you wind up owing, don't have the money, we'll work something out. It's not like you're going to lose your house if you make a wrong choice about advanced child tax payments. And having a tax authority with enough resources to actually answer the phone when taxpayers are calling with questions, that would have been nice too. You're dreaming. That just leaves the ugly. The hiccups so far are certainly an ugly aspect. Many qualifying families aren't receiving their checks at all or receiving them late because the IRS didn't have their bank account information on record. What if you didn't even file a tax return in 2020 because your income was so low, or you had a new child in 2021 that the IRS doesn't magically know about? It's a huge, important program. We're asking the IRS to roll it out without any additional resources, and that's an unfair ask. This is why we can't have nice things. It's also ugly because despite bipartisan support for expanding these credits that existed prior to a pandemic, at least right now, it's slated to end at the end of this year. And I guess I'm going to be petty for a second. Let me be generous here and say that's also playing against type today. Thanks so much for that, wifey. Okay, so the petty (laughs) pessimist that I am is going to say that there's been some news reporting by the Associated Press. Every Republican voted against the package that contained this measure, the American Rescue Plan. But a lot of them are still trying to take credit for it. Is that not okay? I thought that was just how politics worked. Are you not Are you not allowed to publicly rally against something and then act like it was your idea all along? I mean, it feels like the answer should be no, but I'm not a politician, so what, what do I know? So I guess another thing I'll throw in the hat is that, like we've discussed before with other tax policies, um, some of the numbers just feel arbitrary. Like, why is an 18-year-old child who's still a dependent less expensive than a 17-year-old? And why start phasing out the benefits at 150000 um, whereas other provisions of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act didn't phase them out until over 400000 Would the money be better spent if the benefit was increased but given to fewer households? There are a lot of questions here. I'd like to see more data-driven, or how about any? How about any data-driven <laughs> decisions? Well, that's all we have time for today. I'm Lisa DeSimone. And I'm Bridget Stomberg. Be sure to join us for more tax nerdery on future episodes of Taxes for the Masses.